All right. Well, hey, good to see everyone. Uh, looks like we're recovering from our summer slump uh, where people are traveling and also a lot of sickness lately. Uh, how many of you in the last uh, couple months have faced some sickness? Raise a hand. Okay. Well, you guys are a pretty clean group. Only, only about four of us raised hands. I raised mine. Ted, Erlene, uh, we were honest. The rest of you, not, not being honest, but the, no, I'm just So good to, good to see all of you this evening. We're going to continue in our study in 1 Kings, and uh, we're going to be in chapter 16, finish chapter 16, and then we, of course, move into chapter, am I right on that? Yeah. Then we go into chapter 17. <laughs> I, I thought about going into 17 tonight, but there's enough in 16 that I don't want to pass over it. But when we get to 17, now we have Elijah on the scene. He's, he's doing his thing. And uh, that's, a, that's a welcome sight uh, for all we've been reading the last few chapters because the northern kingdom is really a, a bad situation. So... All right, well, let's go ahead and begin with prayer. I want to welcome those who are watching by live stream. Thanks for joining us, and uh, hope that this ministers to you tonight. And of course, it's, we don't see live stream as, a, as an alternative. We see it as a substitute. It's not a substitute. It's simply filling in. If you can't be here, then we are glad that you're watching on live stream. If you can be here, then come on over. And uh, there's nothing like being in the presence of other believers and having fellowship. And more than anything, you're missing out on some incredible desserts. Uh, we're having a great time tonight. So let's begin with prayer. Father, we, we just turned the corner here and we want to now uh, lay down the funny things and the, the, the little things that really don't matter uh, in life and go with the things that are most important. And that is fellowship. That is that we be together and we care for each other and we talk with each other, encourage one another. Because each day we're out trying to live the life, <coughs> excuse me, of a believer. And that's, that requires a lot from us. And coming together in the evening with other believers, we can just find ourselves in the company of people who understand. And it encourages our hearts. So, Lord, tonight we now open the Word of God, which is the greatest comfort that we can have in this world. We pray that the Word would strengthen our spirit, strengthen our faith, that it would bolster us to be bold in the Lord each day, and that the Word of God would do more than just be knowledge in our head. May it be a change of life in our heart. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, we're going to pick up at verse 8 in chapter 16. And let me go back there myself. In the 26th year of Asa, king of Judah, uh, let me just start by saying, just as the Lord didn't turn a blind eye to the sins of Jeroboam and Nadab, neither will he allow Basha or Basha to escape judgment for the false worship system that, that really continued under his reign. It did start with Jeroboam, no question about it but he's out of the same mold. So now let's read uh, in the 26th year of Asa, king of Judah. Of course, that's the king of Judah in the south. But most of the discussion is about the kings in the north, which is Israel. But they're keeping track chronologically by the years of the king in the south. Okay, 
So they're keeping track. The timeline of all the kings in the northern kingdom are always backed up against King Asa in Judah. And this is the 26th year of the reign of King Asa in Judah. Now, just for clarity, are all of you understanding, are you clear on the fact that during this period of history, Israel was a divided kingdom? You had those in the north and you had those in the south, and they were, they were separate kingdoms. The north kingdom was called Judah or Israel, the southern kingdom, Judah. And so both did evil in the sight of the Lord. But Judah in the south did have, during the divided kingdom uh, period, they did have a few good kings. The northern kingdom had a lot more kings, and all of them were evil. <laughs> so this, all of this led to, which was prophesied a hundred years before, it all led to Israel and Judah coming under great bondage. God brought judgment. And in the north, He brought in the Assyrians, who were valiant, ruthless warriors. And they literally captured the northern kingdom, and they hauled off the leaders and the key families, and, and really just as many people as they could round up. They hooked them, they put hooks in them, and hauled them away into slavery. And in order, when, when Assyria came in, they didn't want a time somewhere in the future for Israel to come back together. So they tried to erase from the memory of the people of Israel their heritage. So they would separate mother from child, husband from wife, and they would send them in different directions. The Assyrian Empire was large. So they separated family members. That's what happened in the north. It was ruthless when God allowed the Assyrians to come in. The southern kingdom lived a little bit longer, and then God brought in the Babylonians, who had the Babylonian empire, a great empire, and they did the same thing. They changed the names. Remember, if you read about in the, in, under Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Daniel was there with three Hebrew boys. What were their names? Okay, those are the names given in the Babylonian kingdom separating them from their heritage. So this is what we're studying, is this period of time when the nation of Israel is divided. The northern kingdom is called Israel. The southern is called Judah. The southern king is in his 26th year. His name is Asa. And in that period of time, Elah, the son of Basha, became king over Israel, the northern kingdom. Okay? at Terzah, and reigned two years. Wow, what a, what a reign. He reigned for two years. His, here's what happened. His servant, Zimri, these are really interesting names. Zimri, he was commander of half of, of Elah's chariots, and he conspired against him. Now, he was at Terzah, drinking himself drunk. So Elah is the king of the north, and in northern fashion, he's drunk as a skunk. 
and in the house of Arza, who was over the household of Terza. Then Zimri went in and struck him and put him to death in the 26th year of Asa, king of Judah, <coughs> excuse me, and became king in his place. So you've got, you've got this new guy who now is the king, and we would only even hardly want to mention his name because he's not there long enough, Zimri. And then, or I'm sorry, not Zimri, uh, Elah was the, was the king under Basha. Basha was the terrible king, and Elah was just as wicked. And, and Zimri comes in, strikes him, puts him to death, and then he becomes the king. It came about, verse 11, when he became king, as soon as he sat on his throne that he killed all the household of Basha, or Basha. He did not leave a single male, not, neither of relatives nor of his friends. So, or thus, Zimri destroyed all the household of Basha according to the word of the Lord. This was prophesied, okay? Which he spoke against Basha through Jehu the prophet. For all the sins of Basha and the sins of Elah his son, uh, which they sinned and which they made Israel sin, provoking the Lord God of Israel to anger with their idols. Now the rest of the acts of Elah and all that he did, are, not, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So the hope of every king is to pass the throne on to your, your children, that your dynasty lives for as long as possible. And Basha's dynasty didn't go very long. He passed the, king, the, the throne off to his son, who was there for how many days? What does it say here? So a little over, you know, 800 days. And now he's gone. So God shortened his dynasty, and his only son reigned for two years. Now what's interesting is that just as Basha gained the throne through assassination, so the son of Basha was assassinated. So it came back on him. Uh, and this is interesting. It was, the, it was an officer of the army that took him out. This is exactly what Basha did to the house of Jeroboam. In 1 Kings, turn back, if you will, one chapter to 1 Kings 15, 29. And as soon as he was king, he killed all the house of Jeroboam. This is what Basha did. He left, he left to the house of Jeroboam not one that breathed until he had destroyed it, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servant Ahijah the Shilonite. So God brought down his wrath and his anger and judgment against these wicked kings, and he used wicked kings to take out the wicked kings that he spoke against. And so here he's using Basha to do it, and now he comes and he uses Zimri to do it, and, and uh, uh, all these guys are wicked themselves. So one takes out the next, the next takes out the next. It's just a, you know, what a, it's ludicrous what's happening in the northern kingdom. Now, when you put that against David, how he handled the house of Saul when David became king, he did not take out all of Saul's family members. Remember Mephibosheth, uh, the son of Jonathan, David's grandson, who was crippled from a very young age, <laughs> living in an obscurity, 
and barely making it. And David uh, asked, are there any of the house of David left? And Mephibosheth heard that David had been asking. He immediately thought, he's going to send somebody to kill me. And there's nothing I can do about it. I'm crippled. And of course, the servant came and said, no, he wants you to come to him. And David gave Mephibosheth everything that his father, uh, his grandfather owned, gave him his servant and the servant's house to the servant back again. And David said, I want you to eat at my table going forward. You'll have your meals with my family. Wow. What a change from the Northern Kingdom. <laughs> I don't see any of these guys in the North doing that. Um, why? Because the whole northern kingdom is born out of sin. And, and James made it clear that once sin's given birth, it grows. It only gets worse. And its end is destruction. It's death. And so that's what you're seeing. The, the New Testament is, proving, is being proven true by what happened in the Old Testament. This is what's happening here. Um, by the way, this massacre was an exact fulfillment of the word of the Lord through the prophet Jehu, the son of Hanan. Go back to verse 2 of chapter 16. It says, Since I exalted you out of the dust and made you leader over my people Israel, and you have walked in the way of Jeroboam and have made my people Israel to sin, provoking me to anger with their sins, behold, I will utterly sweep away Basha and his house. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Anyone belonging to Basha who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat you. And anyone of his who dies in the field of the birds of the heavens shall eat. So to be eaten by the animals, wild animals, was a total disgrace to an Israelite. Uh, to not be buried with your, your family, to be left out in the open in public and then letting animals come and eat your body. That was the worst possible thing that could happen. It was like a curse, okay? So in less than 50 years, the first two dynasties of Israel's kings had come to an end, Jeroboam and Basha, okay? And every member of their families has been exterminated. All right, so God meant to make their doom an example, and He absolutely did it. Only problem is He's dealing with people who like the dark. They're corrupt, they're wicked, they have no regard for God. So even though God brought judgment against these two dynasties, the people, it didn't change their heart. Their heart was still evil. So one last thing, let me say this before we continue on. Elah was killed by Zimri. When was that? It says when he was drinking himself drunk. Um, the Bible does not say that you cannot drink. Uh, it says don't get drunk. Don't become inebriated. Don't be given to debauchery. Uh, this was interesting. One of, the, one of the, the scholars said this. 
He said, this was General John Joseph Pershing. Anybody remember that name? Okay. He was nicknamed Black Jack. He was a senior United States Army officer. He served most famously as the commander of the American Expeditionary Forces, AEF, on the Western Front during World War I. So he knew something about war, I would say. What do you think? Here's what he said regarding drinking. Drunkenness has killed more men than all the wars in human history. By the age of 20, Alexander the Great was the king of the Grecian Empire and conquered the entire known world. By the age of 33, imagine that. At that point, he threw a party, became drunk, fell into a coma, and died four days later. So, alcohol conquered the man who conquered the world, the known world. I, I, I point this out because I'm tired of dealing with couples whose marriages and individuals, but especially couples with children whose marriages are in complete disorder and disarray and dysfunction because of an alcoholic parent with an enabling spouse or with drugs, prescription drugs, which are very big among women and the devastation that it does to a home. I'm very concerned for that. So many people suffer, children suffer because of these addictions. And of course, the person who's in the addiction is suffering too. I think if they could get out, many of them would, but they don't know how to get out. And that's the problem with addiction. It holds you, you don't hold it. Be like grabbing hold of a snake and then the snake just turns and coils up on you. Now who's got you? You don't have it, it has you. It's very sad. Let's keep moving. Verse 15, in the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, so now we're one year later, 26th year, we saw the assassination now the next year. Zimri reigned seven days at Terzah. This is the guy that just took out Elah, who reigned for two years. Now this guy goes out after seven days, one week as the king. The people were camped against Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines. So that would be down in the south, southeast. Or I'm sorry, the southwest. And verse 16, the people who were camped heard it said, Zimri has conspired and has also struck down the king. Therefore, all Israel made Omri, the commander of the army, king over Israel that day in the camp. For the first time, the people turned to uh, the democratic system, and they all said, we want Omri. We don't want Zimri. Look what he did to, to Elah. We can't trust that guy. Let's get, let's get Omri. He, he's, a, he's, he's in the army. This guy's got it all together. And Omri and all Israel with him went up from Gibbethon and besieged Terzah. So when Zimri, who is the king for seven days, saw that the city was taken by Omri, he went into the citadel of the king's house and burned the king's house over him with fire and died because of his sins, which he sinned, doing evil 
in the sight of the Lord, walking in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin, which he did, making Israel sin. So it it's almost sounds like, he, well, he did commit suicide. But it almost tries to make it a noble act that he did this because he became aware of all of his sins and the sins that he had caused among the people. Um, the noble act would have been to publicly profess, I'm a sinner, I've done wrong, I shouldn't have the kingdom, I stepped down. That would have been noble. That's not what he did. And the reason he took his life was because he knew the commander of the army was now the king and he was already in uh, the city of Terza. He knew his days were numbered. So out of fear, which is the heart, it's at the heart of suicide is a lack of courage. At the heart of suicide, you have believed lies of Satan. You have no courage. You've become so self-centered that you stop thinking about the effects of suicide on people. You just want a way out. It, suicide is self-murder. It is a sin in the Bible. It's self-murder. And it it's, it's lacks faith. It lacks courage. There's nothing noble about suicide. Don't let anybody ever try to make suicide look noble. You look at these celebrities that commit suicide all the time in the music industry, in, in the movie industry, and they almost try to draw it up and, come on, it's not right. Now, I'm going to say this, and I pray that nobody takes it the wrong way, but just as it's not noble, just as it is a sin, we can't come to the conclusion that suicide is the unforgivable sin. It is not. But what you did was you took matters in your own hands instead of letting God play out your days. And you, you, when you go to heaven as a believer, you'll be judged for the rewards, the works that you did for the Lord. These are not your works. There's a difference between your work and God's work. We're talking about God's work that you'll be rewarded for. And if you did God's work with a right heart, not for recognition, but as unto the Lord, whether you people saw you do it or not, you don't care. That's not why I did it. In heaven, that those rewards done that way will withstand the fire, the purifying fire in heaven. All other rewards that you did, that you're proud of, that people have praised you for, oh, stop, 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 stop. All that burns. It's gone in heaven. It doesn't exist. A suicide, not a victim. It's a self-murder. They have literally stopped God from giving them reward. You, 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 you decided you were smarter than God. I can do it my way. You did the Frank Sinatra song. And it doesn't work. I don't think that suicide keeps you out of heaven. 
I just don't think that there's any positive that comes from suicide, either in eternity or on this side, where now your family members suffer for years and many never recover from the devastation of that one act. Uh. Mm. Tough stuff. I, I've ministered in many situations and I've never come out of a situation of suicide where it didn't have a lasting negative impact and hurt deeply people and change them, not for the better. Only God can restore, right? And God can restore people who have suffered because someone became very selfish and took their life. But I'm telling you, it's hard. It's hard. So, uh, there's, there's not a whole lot of suicide mentioned in the Bible. You've got uh, Samson, you've got Saul, King Saul, you've got Ahithophel, and you've got Judas. And uh, so the Bible doesn't promote it as something honorable. In all four of those situations, there was nothing honorable about it. So I think that's the takeaway. God allowed many of the wicked kings of Israel to reign much longer than this, but he was under no obligation to do so. So with Elah, two years. With uh, Zimri, seven days. Um, and they were taken out by people who were as wicked as they are. So whether or not God actually sent those people to take them out or whether God knew the hearts of those people and He allowed them to do it. We don't really know the answer to that, but we do know this. God is sovereign, total control of everything that happens. Let's go to verse 21. Now we come to the fourth dynasty of the northern kingdom of Israel, the house of Omri. Then the people of Israel were divided into two parts. Half of the people followed uh, Tibni, the son of Ganath, to make him king, and the other half followed Omri. So you've got a divided kingdom, north and south, and in the north, now you've got another divided kingdom. Uh, but the people who followed Omri prevailed over the people who followed Dib, excuse me, Tibni, the son of Ganath. And Tibni died, and Omri became king. And in the th uh, 31st year of Asa, there it is again, Asa down in the south, you know, in his 31st year, Omri became king over Israel and reigned 12 years. He, he reigned six years at Terza. He bought the hill Samaria. It's about a 300-foot-high hill in Samaria. And he bought it from Shemer for two talents of silver. And he built on the hill and named the city which he built Samaria after the name Shemer, the owner of the hill. And with the palace burned by Zimri's head, folks, listen, uh, or by Zimri's hand, Omri found a new city from which he would reign. Remember, Omri is a military guy. So he understands warfare, but he's also probably very uh, acute to political, uh, political things. He has a political awareness about him. So he found a city where he could build a new capital, take it away from, Zer, uh, what was the name of that place? Zer, 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 what's it called? Tizna? Okay, so he takes it from there and he moves it to Samaria which is closer to Judah, closer to the south. It's still in the north, 
but it's really, it's central. You have Galilee at the north, and then you've got Samaria, and then you've got Judah, Jerusalem. So uh, with the palace burned by Zimri's hand, Omri took advantage of the opportunity. Uh, Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord and acted more wickedly than all who were before him, for he walked in the way, I'm sorry, he walked in the way of Jeroboam. No matter how bad they were, it always says they walked in the way of Jeroboam. So Jeroboam's the worst. He, the son of Nebat. And in his sins, which he made Israel sin, he that's interesting, he made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord God of Israel with their idols. To make them sin, that means he was probably having put in law sin. You've got to do this. You don't have a choice. Um, today, wow, some similarities. So Omri was a man who, like every other king of Israel, followed the foolish example of Jeroboam. What is the example of Jeroboam? Idolatry, immortality, or immorality, and really just devastation. Everything he touched, it, it, it died. Uh, and then he died, and in his place came the most wicked king of all, one of uh, so wicked that they no longer say he's like Jeroboam. He was worse than Jeroboam. Now, verse 27, the rest of the acts of Omri, which he did, and his might, which he uh, showed, are, not, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? So Om, Om, Omri slept with his fathers and was buried in Samaria, and Ahab his son became king in his place. So now we go from Jeroboam and all the kings that followed Jeroboam, after, who were after Jeroboam, and like Jeroboam, now all of a sudden the son of Omri comes into power and he is worse than Jeroboam. Uh, but but let's, not, let's just back up for a second, what it said earlier. See, now we have a civil war in the northern kingdom. There's a civil war going on. You would think that after all that God did to judge all these kings, that the people would turn and repent and come clean. They didn't. Why? Because... People who are committing sin live in the dark, and they like the dark. They're used to the dark. The last thing they want is the light to shine in darkness. Then I would see and others would see what I'm doing. That's when we sin many times. It's in the dark when we think nobody sees us. This is the natural way of your being, your physical body. And God is trying to reach them. I mean, honestly, he, He's showing judgment after judgment against these kings. The people are just as wicked as the kings. It's not like they were forced to go into evil. They, they're evil. Uh, and, and you know what's interesting? The reason that they do this, that they, that they continue in evil, is because and, and they just look to the next king. It's interesting how we think that a physical problem needs a physical answer. So we've got physical problems as a nation. So let's find somebody, a person, a physical being, who can fix the physical problems. Let's put the people that we like in Congress, in the Senate, you know, in the House, in the Senate. Let's put them there because they'll be able to handle these physical problems that we're facing. 
Let's, let, let's put the right people in the, at the Supreme Court. Let, let's use physical beings to take care of a physical problem. Not knowing. The world does not know this. The Bible says in, where does it say it? It says it somewhere, anyway. It says that the natural man cannot appraise spiritual things. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I think. He cannot appraise spiritual things. He doesn't see the fact that the problem isn't physical. It's spiritual. We look at gun control. We just need to stop people having guns. How does that change the heart of a human being? How does that change it? It, it can't change it. It has no bearing on the heart. But it's easier for us to win political points and get elected if we talk about gun control. Because the world that cannot appraise spiritual things thinks that's the answer. A physical problem needs a physical answer. And that's just one of a thousand ways that as a nation we have turned from God. I'm not talking about a nation that's heading in the wrong direction. I'm talking about a nation that now is sliding off a slippery slope. We can't turn around. Because man won't admit that he's a sinner and won't look to God for a Savior. He will not repent of his sin. He keeps looking for physical answers to physical problems. Does that make sense? This is the nation that we are today. And God's, I think God's bringing some judgments against our nation. We're seeing some things happen that are that I think God's either allowing or He might even be behind. I don't know. But He's trying to give us opportunity to turn, to repent. Are you seeing any repentance on a national scale? When was the last time Congress, when was the last time the Senate, when was the last time the Supreme Court spoke out and said, we need to turn back to God? Our nation has gotten off course with God. We That's where our mooring is. That's our founding. That's that's the gyroscope that we need to have so we know when we're flying right side up or upside down. There's none of that. They're not looking that way. We've got another election in two years. I guarantee you there won't be anything on any ticket about turning back to God and repenting of our sins. So what candidate is the best candidate? Well, probably one's a little better than the other, but they're both. Jesus said, I love this. Jesus said, if a blind man leads a blind man, they both fall into the pit. Hello? So, yeah, and a lot of times he puts the people in authority who will bring his judgment through their evil acts. That's what we're seeing here. So, um, what, what, you know, that, that comes all of it, what I just said. I just, you know, some of you go, oh, it's such doom and gloom. Pastor Greg, oh, oh, oh. Um, your hope is in Christ, right? It doesn't matter how bad this nation gets. You still have Jesus. You still have one another in Christ who can appraise spiritual things because the Holy Spirit 
lives in you. You can face anything, right? Amen. Can somebody get me a, a water bottle? Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Richard. Oh, Richard, for years, has covered me. And I mean that. And so has Gordon. These guys, uh, they, they really, they think differently. They really do. They, uh, in times in the past when I've faced some, you know, criticism or some negativity in the public arena, um, these men have been there to stand beside me and my family and protect us, literally protect. I had one note come in and the, guy, the note just said, uh, you're going to die. Might not be today, but you're going to die. That's all it said. I'm like, wow. And so Richard said, okay, well, I'll be at your house and I'll post men around the clock outside your, your house. Now think about that. That's uh, very thankful. And then he brings me water. Um, we need each other in these days. That's why we're a church. That's why God gave us the church as a way to belong, to find protection, to find encouragement, to be strengthened and supported as we try to walk with Christ so that we don't lose heart and fall back. Paul said, I never shrunk back from bringing you the Word of God. He told that to the Ephesian church. We should never shrink back no matter how bad this world gets. Amen? We need each other. Um, one last thing about choosing to build in Samaria and, it, and make it the capital. Uh, there were two things going on there. First of all, Samaria at that time had no history. There is no political tribal background over that area. It was just a man who owned the hill. So Omri knew that I'm not going to have to fight against prior, you know, families that have owned this area. And secondly, it's 300 feet up. It's positioned so that we can, we can build a strong defense against anyone who lays siege. And he was right because seven times uh, Samaria was taken, uh, people brought a siege against Samaria, unsuccessful. So uh, that, that is interesting. Now, this is interesting too. In secular history, so among the Jewish people in their Jewish historical documents, what they have left, because um, they lost all that when the divided kingdom took place, they were hauled off. But anyway, uh, they see Omri as one of the most successful kings to ever rule in Israel. Uh, he was a very famous monarch. Uh, why? Uh, the Moabite stone discovered in 1868 refers to him as the conqueror of Moab. Assyrian inscriptions make mention of him as a great warrior. And for years, the Assyrians referred to Israel as the house of Omri. So this guy uh, doesn't... For whatever reason, God did not want that recorded because of His, his wickedness. God just didn't list, list any of that. But, uh, but He was a wicked king. And in the end, uh, Omri goes down like the rest of them. 
He's the sixth king of Israel, the northern kingdom, and, uh, and he's the first king that, uh, or the last king that's like Jeroboam. His son, Ahab, will be like Ahab, <laughs> and his name will go forward. Now, he's known for, Omri was known for, as I said earlier, formulating laws. Just write the verse down. Micah, the prophet Micah, chapter 6, verse 16. Um, Jeroboam's, Jeroboam had cow, uh, calf worship and other forms of idolatry that were very customary across the land. People just participated. Well, Omri comes along and he forces the people to worship the false idols. So his name actually means heaping. And really what he's known for is heaping up wrath of God against him and his own dynasty, which was executed 36 years later. I mean, in 36 years from the time that Omri became king, nobody was left to, of his, of his uh, family. Uh, his dynasty was completely made extinct. Verse 29, now Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel in the 38th year <laughs> excuse me, of Asa the king. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. So now we switch back over to Judah, the southern kingdom, okay? It says Asa reigned for 41 years in total. Uh, during his 41 years, there were seven, diff seven different kings in the northern kingdom. Verse 30. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were uh, before him. It came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he married, what's the name? Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, or Ethbal, king of the Sidonians and went to serve Baal and worshipped him. Remember David when he was building, I'm Solomon rather, I'm sorry, but David too, they had an alliance with uh, Sidon and Tyre because of the wood that they could produce, you know, and they were great craftsmen. Um, and now this thing's gone really south. So he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. Ahab also made the Asherah, uh, thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. That would include Jeroboam. Each of the previous kings of Israel walked in the wicked pattern of Jeroboam. Ahab distinguished himself in being worse than that. His father Omri was a political and economic success story, but uh, was a spiritual failure. Well, Ahab picked up where his father left off. Ahab means... It means brother of the father or resembling the father. So as Omri was wicked and evil, his son was wicked and evil. Jeroboam served the Lord through idolatrous images such as golden calf and in disobedient ways with altars and high places and other things. Uh, Ahab introduced the worship of completely new pagan gods. He's going to take it up a notch, just like we see today. Okay, You don't see a lot of people worshiping a golden, a golden calf, right? But today there's so many different forms of wor idol worship. In his disobedience, Jeroboam said, I will worship the Lord, but do it my way. Well, Ahab said, I want to forget about the Lord and worship Baal. So Ahab married 
Jezebel, the most wicked woman in, in human history. I mean, this woman. And introduced the worship of her God, who is Baal. Okay, the wretched wife of Ahab became symbolic of the evil of false religion that we see manifesting throughout the Bible. In fact, turn it, well, you don't have to turn, I'll just read it. Rebel, write it down, Revelation 2.20. Even in the book of Revelation 2.20, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. The God of rain. That's what Baal was, the God of rain. Supposedly, uh, he would bring the rains from, from the heavens for the crops that they would produce. It was kind of like the worship of Baal was kind of like an intellectual ascent kind of a thing. If you, if you would worship Baal, you were in the upper category, you know, intellectually in that society. And so it became kind of like a popular thing. Oh, I'd like to be among those people, so I worship Baal too. It's kind of like Hollywood, kind of like that kind of stuff, you know? All the things that they get involved in and, and, and the things that they worship. And you and I look at it scratching our heads, and they look at it like, man, aren't we something? To me, you look like a, like a king with no clothes on, okay? Uh, but not to them. They think it's absolutely the best. In his later years, Solomon tragically worshipped pagan gods, but Omri and Ahab were far worse because they commanded the people to worship false gods. It says, uh, he made statutes in favor of idolatry and obliged the people by law to commit them. The voice of the Lord, this is Micah chapter 6, verse 9. Micah 6, 9. The voice of the Lord cries to the city, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. So be careful of, of, of everything that Ahab is doing. And interestingly, really... The wickedness of Ahab didn't come about because of his own character being so much worse than Jeroboam. It was his wife. He was weak with his wife and let her dictate where the nation was going, which is the perversion of the roles that God has given man and woman. She wanted to lead. He wanted her to take the lead. He wanted to look like the leader, but he did whatever she said. So he has abdicated his role as a spiritual head, which he was spiritually dead. Um, he couldn't carry that role out. But this is interesting. One scholar said, had a secular historian been recording these events, the marriage of Ahab and Jezebel would likely have been applauded as a prudent political move. Israel needed Sidon as an ally. She came from Sidon. So on the surface, it looks like the best thing possible. There are things that happen in our world today, alignments that take place, and we think, oh, economically, that's really a good move. It could be the worst move, spiritually speaking. And that's what this was, okay? Uh, Jezebel's father's name was Ethbal, which means with Baal or crying out for Baal. So these people were completely given to immorality, to idol worship. 
Now, when you translate into Hebrew the name of Jezebel, uh, it's kind of a verbal pun because, uh, and Israel must have just had a lot of fun with this, because Zebel, Jezebel, Zebel in Hebrew means dung. Dung. God does have a sense of humor. <laughs> so Jezebel was infamous for her idolatry, cruelty, sorcery, and filthiness. Uh, another theologian said it seemed like the marriage partnership between Tyre and Israel was ideal for Israel. Tyre was at the height of its glory. Her colonies dotted the shores of the Mediterranean as far as Spain. Her ships whitened every sea with their sails and ventured to the coast of our own Cornwall for ten. Her daughter, Carthage, nursed the Lion Cup, Hannibal, and was strong enough to make Rome tremble. So you're talking about a pretty powerful uh, alliance that, that Ahab has made, brought Israel into alliance with Sidon, taking uh, the king's daughter, Jezebel. In his days, Hiel, the Bethelite, built Jericho, verse 34. He laid its foundations with the loss of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates with the loss of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. So what is this about Joshua? What did he say? In Joshua 6.26, the Lord cursed the man who would attempt to rebuild Jericho. Here a man named Hiel does just that, which shows either total ignorance or contempt for God. Because God said, I'm going to curse the man that does it. Well, it wasn't ignorance. He built the city out of contempt. The people had no respect for God, neither did they respect the word of the Lord spoken through the, through the prophets or through even the patriarchs, Joshua. I want you to notice something that has been building for several chapters here. Very interesting here. We have seen things go from bad to worse to worse, right? It's a downward spiral. It's getting darker. It's when things are dark that the light has the greatest impact. And what you're going to see happen in the backdrop of this story that's going on, these terrible, wicked kings and people, but all of a sudden, a light is coming into the picture. This is God. This is God's way. He always, even though He's storing up anger against sinners and sin, but His heart is redemption. His heart is to save. His heart is to deliver. And so in the darkness, as it gets darker and darker, a light's coming up. You know what it is? A man by the name of Elijah. This is the period of time that God brings forth Elijah to try and turn Israel back to God. I just love that. Now, I'm going to go back just for a second. The text said he laid its foundations with the loss of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates with the loss of the youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord. 
Archaeological excavations have uncovered evidence of a practice in ancient biblical times called foundation sacrifices. Whereas they would build a city, build the wall, they would lay their child, oftentimes alive, into the foundation. That's what this is. That's how evil, how corrupt, how uh, reprobate the mind of these people. And it's almost as if, honestly, it's a warning from God. These two boys, I don't know how they died, whether it was because they laid them in there alive and covered them up or whether they killed them and threw them in. I don't know. But it's almost like God saying, do you not see what's coming if you continue down this path? Now your reprobate mind no longer can make the difference between good and evil. You're committing great acts of evil and you think it's okay. I think it really, honestly, I think it was a merciful warning that God's giving to Ahab. And these were not Ahab's children. These were, what's his name? Hiel, his kids, the guy who's doing the building. Hiel of Bethel, the man you directed to re rebuild Jericho. God is probably trying to reach Ahab and say, you need to turn around now. But see, Ahab has zero respect for God. So as we enter chapter 17, we're going to see God's man on the scene. God bringing a light, trying to turn a wicked people. By the way, these were God's people. <laughs> these were people who knew God. Their, their forefathers walked with God, saw God perform miracles but they stopped telling the stories from generation to generation. And now these people are just like every other pagan nation. They're no different. They don't know who God is. They don't care who God is. They've drifted that far. But God still knows them. And God is still trying to reach them. And today, God is still has a place in His heart for the Jews. And I'm so thankful that He has a place in His heart for the Gentiles. You and I. Amen? <laughs> we're blessed. We're blessed. Well, we're going to close here. We'll start chapter uh, 17. Father, thank you so much uh, for your word. So much to chew on and think about, uh, figuratively speaking. I, I pray that you would uh, just allow your word to really settle in our hearts tonight. The importance of not playing games with you and not having sins kept in private, in dark, in the dark. Um, that doesn't make us better than people who, who sin in the light. I pray, Lord, that you would uh, allow us to see that you're a God that loves, even, even here with Ahab, trying to get him to see this is where you're heading. You need to stop now. I told you not to build anything in Jericho, and here you are. Oh, God, may we learn from these stories. Father, thank you for loving us, for reaching us in our own sin, and for covering up our sin through the shed blood of Jesus so that only His righteousness now is in us and that you are pleased, not because we do good works, but because Christ did the work for us. We give you all the praise. Amen. Amen.
God bless you, church. Make sure you get, grab some dessert before you leave.